everybody, Mike here. You are joining part two of our Bride of Frankenstein episode, which is already in progress. If you haven't already, go back and listen to part one, where Brian, Stephen, and our special guest, Egraine, of the What a Scream podcast, discuss their love for the universal monsters of the Bride of Frankenstein as well as the background of this movie we go into, like how the movie got made and its cultural impact. We're going to pick up from there and talk about all the overarching themes and a deep dive into The Bride of Frankenstein itself. We hope you enjoy our discussion of this movie. It was a fun one. Not going to lie. We think you're going to love it. But then again, we think that every week. Otherwise, why would we put out the show? It would be silly if we thought... You're going to hate this episode, but go ahead and listen to it anyway. All right, with that said, let's pick up with the episode already in progress. All right, let's talk about this movie. Let's talk about some of the themes and some of the major uh, scenes and characters from it and i want to start with like the prologue here because it opens up in a pretty interesting way like where frankenstein opens with uh edward van sloan coming out reminding the audiences like it's only a movie here you have uh the fictionalized versions of mary shelley and lord byron and percy shelley base a basically recreating the night that Frankenstein was first written. And there's an interesting line that was cut from this. Uh, Whale insisted that this goes in the movie. Like he was not coming back unless this was put in. And I think that it, it provides like number one, like a really nice mirror to what we see at the end of the movie. And it sets up a lot of the themes we're going to see in terms of like finding family and finding people to love. But there's a line that's cut that Shelley Uh, that Mary Shelley uh, or Elsa Lanchester says here where she says, we are three infidels scoffers at all marriage ties, believing only in loving freely (laughs) that is cut from the script. The censors are like, no, we are not allowing this to go in here. Why would they cut that? Such Uh, a great line. But it's it's pretty obvious that, you know, what, what this trio is like, they're all, in love with one another they're all sharing the same bed like they're living life the way they want to do it in a very non-heteronormative way and why do we feel that not only this is so important to the opening of this movie but to what we're going to see in the ensuing 75 minutes i mean it kind of sets up that you know what we said before about what kind of the, the queer coding of this movie that you know, Henry so desperately wants to be happy with his, uh, you know, his hetero relationship and getting married and he wants to be happy with Elizabeth. But as soon as Pretorius comes through the door, you know, it doesn't mm. take a lot to persuade him. It's not like Pretorius is like, play, like I, I think at one point it says it blackmails him. He doesn't really, he's like, ah, go on. And Henry's like, oh, I suppose so. Um, and so it really sets it up as, you know, this film is about non-conventional relationships and you know perhaps something that society deems um i think even you know setting it up like setting this epilogue up uh, sorry prologue up and you know because shelly was against society you know 
even the whole evening, it was these, you know, two guys that thought they were the shit and, you know, could come up with the scariest fi- and, and she's like, actually, no, this teenage female woman who is put down by society is going to come up with one of the scariest stories ever. So I think Whale including this in this film is really like, this is what the root of this story comes from and this is what I want to display in my adaptation of it how you know heteronormativity and all of this you know it's not it's you know it's not what is always done there are us outcasts out there who want to live our lives a certain way but we're monstracized for it um so I think that's like that prologue is so important yeah Yeah, and it's not necessarily like casting aspersions in heteronormativity mm-hmm. it's just suggesting there are alternatives as well and it was also whale whale also because he was adamant that that elsa lanchester play both roles and he was adamant because he wanted to suggest that pretty people could come up with these monstrous things i think was the quote that he came up with. He wanted to have this, make it known that like, this is where the story comes from. Like this, like you said, this young woman, this very like, you know, beautiful person could come up with like this absolutely horrifying story. Like nightmares can come from absolutely anybody. And I think there's also this really nice symmetry here where you have like these two men surrounding this woman at the beginning of this and at the end of the movie you're going to have like Henry and Pretorius guiding the bride in her first steps in life as well like they are trying to guide her and then she's ultimately going to reject them as well as reject the creature as well you have that going on at the end you also get something this is the one the first horror sequel I believe it's really the first sequel that we're going to get and you get like what struck me rewatching this for the show. There are things that this movie does that like 50 years later, like the Friday, the 13th movies are going to do in their sequels. Like the body count is way bigger. You go from like three or four deaths in Frankenstein <laughs> to more than 10 deaths. You would have gotten 20 if whale got in his way, but you more than double the body mm-hmm. count in this movie. You get the first instance of a recap. Like, Oh, we're going to show you scenes from the previous movie. They even like throw in a scene. That's not even in the first one with like the monster strangling some guy. Like, wait a minute that wasn't there but sure um but you get like scenes that are recreated or uh re-put in from the first movie so you're seeing all of these things in this sequel everything is bigger everything is better 50 years later horror movies still do this it's a bigger body count we show the end of the last movie all of that now carries over like frankenstein is like setting the stage for how we're going to make horror movies 50 years later. And I kind of love that about this prologue. It's building the franchise yeah. before that was even a concept. Yeah. And I think also the addition of the humor is very much like, like Stephen already mentioned, like uh, gremlins too. I mean, there's a uh, big, I think, and we well know that Joe Dante is a big fan of this movie. Um, and I, so I think maybe some of that idea passed in and then you have something like Bride of Chucky, for example, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. 
does the same thing. Texas Chainsaw 2 doing the same kind of thing where you just evil dead too, you know, so, yeah, you, oh, yeah. so you have all of these movies that were in the seat, they, they have a pretty serious first film and then they come along at some point and say, okay, we're going to infuse this with just absurd comedy. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely agree with that. And it's the way to go because how much, like how, how, where could you take it? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, how modeling could you take it, really? And I think it's the right direction to go in. And it's why this, if you just did, like, Frankenstein, but more of the same, like, eh, I think like how much, remember it. I think how much more of that could you do, right? Yeah, because I think Whale was right in that in doing the first Frankenstein movie that way, we did everything we could with that version of the story. So if we're going to do this again, we're going to take it in a different direction. And that's very much what happens here. I think you also see right away how much more violent this movie can be Mm -hmm. because you get like Hans and his wife, like Hans wants to avenge his daughter or at least see that the creature has been destroyed. And you see a much more violent version of the creature than we've seen in the original Frankenstein in that he drowns Hans and then right after that tosses his wife down the stairs and you see her body crashing down those stairs in a way that even by today's standards is a pretty violent death for her. Like I Just think that's pretty incredible. Her down there. Good yeah. heavens. So again, speaking to like sequels going bigger, going more violent, uh, like really upping the stakes. Like we're not going to just rest on the laurels of the first movie. We have to push things forward a little bit in order to appease audiences. And I think in doing that, they they managed to make because in the original, it, Doctor Frankenstein is is the monstrous one in that he conceives of creating life. In this one, the monster becomes fully monstrous, mm-hmm. um, and and becomes monstrous in his own right. Um, I have more to say on that, but I'll say it later, I guess. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the evolution of the creatures. We go on. But before we do that, and, and Igraine, you had mentioned her a little bit earlier, and now might be a good time to mention her since we're at that spot in the film. Una O'Connor, who is introduced here, is a character we did not see in the first movie. Uh, she is playing Minnie, the kind of like, I guess, the housemaiden of uh, kind of like the woman who runs the house, the House of Frankenstein, reprising a role that she really plays the Invisible Man for a whale, like kind of comic relief. And can you speak to a bit about like what Miss O'Connor is bringing to the table here in her role in this for film? For me, she brings uh, maybe, I mean, Una O'Connor isn't an, an Irish uh, American um actress but because i know older women like her like everyone thinks she's a character and i'm just like no i know people that act like that i know people that pull those faces when they are distressed and so like lots of people think you know she it kind of it breaks up the film we've got like you said a very serious scene where um hans and his wife are killed and then there's minnie throwing her arms and crossing her eyes or whatever but for me i'm like Oh, that face, the way she drops, sucks in her yeah. cheeks and drops her yeah. jaw. But for, like for me, it brings a certain amount, and this sounds ridiculous, but a certain amount of realism to it. 
because I know people that thrive off the drama in these terrible situations. And so even though it is comedic mm-hmm. and even though it's ridiculous, it brings a certain amount of realism when we think about crowds and, you know, the mob kind of mentality. There's always that woman who is thriving on the drama. And so, she, yeah, she just brings a certain amount of like realisticness to this role in a really weird way. I have never heard her role described as like realistic before. You obviously don't know a lot of old Irish women. (laughs) I don't. Well, my mom, I know my mom pretty well. I'm trying to picture my mom pulling that face now and running askance in its Oh, what a visual. So the last last place I worked at was like a bakery, like before I kind of went freelance and did my own thing. And my supervisor, when Mm -hmm. I first met her, I was like, oh my God, that's Minnie from Bride of Frankenstein. Because of the faces she pulled and the way she was just going, I was like, oh my God, like I found the real person. (laughs) Yeah. And she's kind of the voice of the skeptic in the audience too. Like she and... E.E. E. Clive, who plays the uh, Burgermaster. Monster, this, like, indeed. He's like, get back to much more serious matters. I don't have time all day for this nonsense. Just, He's also in The Invisible Man. And mm-hmm. again, it's Whale getting his way. Like, I can bring in whoever I want, you know. And I'm sure, like, Lamelli is like, yeah, get the Burgermaster. Who cares who plays the Burgermaster? They're like... 20th down on the on the card like get whoever you want they're the kind of the comic relief they're the voice of the audience the mm-hmm. skeptic in the audience or the there to kind of be the person it's like oh this is a bit ridiculous now isn't it but they play off each other wonderfully where he has no patience for Minnie and she is constantly a thorn in the burgermaster's side throughout this and they have tremendous rapport with one another Absolutely. I think also many something that I every time I watch this, it makes me think of is when she goes to answer the door for Pretorius, mm-hmm. she's like, all right, all right. It's the middle of the night. Um, it just makes it's just like the porter in Macbeth. It's mm-hmm. so much like that. And so I think that sort of draws attention to this idea of this long tradition of this kind of character in a serious story. Um, that is funny and um, giving the audience a chance to, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of relax a little bit. Um, it's yeah. great. She, she has the best visual gag in mm-hmm. the film, too, when Henry tells her, like, send Pretorius away. I don't want to see him. And she's like, I'll tell him to go away. And she shuts the door behind her. And Pretorius just comes in the other door two seconds later. It's my favorite little visual. Yeah, That, when she's like, I wouldn't want to find him under my bed at night. I kind of want to know who Minnie would like to find under her bed. Like, does she have a list? Like if anyone does, Minnie does. It's funny because a lot of her scenes as well are she almost foretells what's going to happen. You know, she's the one that's saying the monster's still alive, mm-hmm. you know, the monster's still there, and everyone's like, ah, crazy old Minnie, would you ever shut up? And then, you know, she's trying to get mm-hmm. Elizabeth ready, and Elizabeth tells her to go to Henry Frank. She's like, I don't want to leave you. Like, I feel weird about leaving you. And, you know, again, Elizabeth is like, whatever, just do as you're told. And that is when the monster comes in and kidnaps. So she's got, even though she's funny, a lot of the time she's mm-hmm. foretelling what's about to happen. 
Mm-hmm. No. No, she's like the... <laughs> you're absolutely right. And Elizabeth here is no longer played by Mae Clark. She is replaced by uh, Valerie Hobson, who is 17 years old at the time she makes this, which kind of when you look at like Colin Clive's is, is about 20 years her senior. At least, um, yeah. At least 20 years her senior. So at least Hollywood hasn't changed in that respect. Nothing has <laughs> changed. Up ingenues with much older actors. The original May, December. Um, <laughs> but she holds her own. Like I wouldn't, honestly, if not doing research for this, would not have known um, that she was 17 at the time of this. Like, she really holds her own. I think she's actually an upgrade over Mae Clark. I think that oh, yeah. Elizabeth has a bit more to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about... Stephen, you talked about, like, Henry being in this film less than you remembered. And I more think than I because remembered. he's... Yeah. Or more than you... Okay. That he kind of, like, shrinks a lot in this movie. And I think that you see with Elizabeth, she's really stepping up. Like, she is the one when Pretorius enters the scene. She's the one kind of confronting him when Henry is kind of, like, shrinking back. Like, he's convalescing in bed and having this long recovery and doesn't really want to face things. And Elizabeth is the one running the house. I think... Hobson is like great as Elizabeth here. I really mm-hmm. enjoy her performance. I think she's more, yeah, she's just more forceful. She seems more, um, she's, she's just given part of it is a script. She's just given more to do. Um, she's a yeah. complete character. Whereas Elizabeth in the original is pretty much just, you know, Henry's fiance <laughs> and, and she gets, attacked by the monster and that's kind of what she's there for in the movie it feels like right so let's talk about our i guess our first real villain so i, I want to say what is interesting too is we get this windmill scene with the monster we get our introduction to Karloff, and then he drops out of the movie for about 30 minutes which is kind of fascinating that you know the creature that we've come to see he's gone for about half of the movie and then he comes back in a big way but uh, he does drop out for about half of the picture and we focus on henry and what i would say is probably the first true villain that we have in this series like two films in and that is uh ernest thessinger playing dr pretorius uh, who is i think you described him as the faust in, uh, or the Mistopheles, uh Brian, uh, in this picture. Yeah, he's... Uh, I think there are certain visual cues that this guy is the devil, you know, because I like, mm-hmm. like the scene in the, in the tomb where he, um, he says, oh, I'm just going to stay around for a while. I rather like it here, you know, <laughs> down in this underground lair. Um, and uh, he's creating things in a in he's he's using the laws of nature but he's like doing them in such a uh the the line you know it's more like black magic i think is is really key he says well you know i i grew them as nature does you know his little homunculi he grew them as nature does from seeds and i i think that's sort of a fascinating thing um that is brought into this and he is you know the mephistopheles character to henry's faust in that he's 
tempting him with knowledge, tempting him with um, the ability to um, to return to this world that he left behind for the uh, quote you know natural. Um, life with Elizabeth and he keeps drawing him back into this world of him create this is actually similar to certain scenes in the in the invisible man even where Flora the rep- is um, the invisible man's fiance she's sort of with that name it's like how can you not think of her as being the natural you know, and and then he is doing something that's against nature. And I think there's interesting explorations of all those things. I'm using a lot of quote marks in the air that no one can see except for mm-hmm. those who I'm talking to. So it's just um, it's just a fascinating exploration of all these ideas, I think. Yeah. I feel like Pretorius exists to basically lure Henry away from Elizabeth. Like, the main purpose of this character, when all is said and done, like, the subtext under him is to say, like, this is not the life you want to live. Like, come with me and we can kind of do our own thing and live the life we want to. Like, that is, like, why this character exists when all is said and done. Yeah, he's definitely, you know, the, almost like the monstrous queer. Um, He is as literally as if there's, like, an angel and a devil on uh henry's shoulder he is the devil he he's kind of like that side of henry who henry wants to be and i guess this reflects with james whale as well that you know he was very kind of at odds with his sexuality because unfortunately it hindered him later on and you know he could live as frankenstein and you know create things but not be authentic or he could be a pretorius be monstrosized but live authentically you know pretorius mentions that he cannot you know reproduce without science because you know mm-hmm. he kind of alludes to it um he he's the one that you know he interrupts his wedding night basically if that's not you know a major flag right. uh, i don't know right. what it is he's like i know you've just been married and i know you know this is the night you usually but do you want to go make some life with me instead you know so it's right it's pretty, yes, it's pretty much in your face um <laughs> but even like uh, you know we see it later on with like dracula's daughter as well because of the outcasts like the outcasting of queer people they were as i said made to be monsters and i guess a lot of them um associated with monsters and even now it's why so many you know queer people are into horror because we associate with the monsters and i kind of feel like i I kind of feel bad for pretorius i don't know whether it's because i associate with monsters and devils and demons a lot but all of this is really henry frankenstein's fault like he's the baddie mm-hmm. you know but it is poor pretorius who gets you know sucked into the fire at the end and burned with the monsters um so yeah i feel i feel really bad for him and you know who doesn't like to hang out in the graveyard and drink gin you know i just i like him i don't think he's bad at all i don't think he's the villain at all i think he's just living authentically yeah. <laughs> well you mentioned the the devil there, there's a part of him that definitely is like there's definitely a part of Pretorius that is living authentically, but then that part of living authentically causes harm to other people. And that's where it goes a little bit too far. Like he is definitely, 
you know, he's still robbing graves. Uh, he has absolutely no problem with Dwight Fry, Dwight Fry's character. You know, maybe committing a little bit of murder to get some of the body parts that he wants. Like, so you can live authentically up to a point, and then when it harms other people, um, and you see the look that he gives Elizabeth, like when they confront one another, he's like, "The matter I have." He's con- not only is he queer, but he's contemptuous of women. I think is like how he looks at her is a look of great scorn. Like he is, he is guilty of kidnapping. I think there's even a line he says when they're in the when Henry is like trying to create the bride, and he's so involved in his work i think pretorius is the one that kind of notes like you know we could hang for this like we have robbed graves committed murder we're stitching bodies together like if we get caught like we could pay a pretty severe price for this like he is aware but he does have a line too where he's like what if we didn't live with angels on our shoulders what if we could just live as devils uh, how lovely that would be like think of all the things we could create and Brian, we talked about this when we talked about Frankenstein. The problem with Frank, with Henry, isn't necessarily that he created this monster. It's that he created this monster without any reckoning as to like what he was creating and what the aftermath was going to be, like what would come after it. And like, what, what his is responsibility? responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. One of the things that I, I want to sort of uh, comment on what Igrain is saying is, I love Dr. Pretorius. I think mm-hmm. oh, he's, he's a villain, but I he's think what I love about him is he's so, he's the most likable villain yeah. that you can Villains imagine. Are a we absolutely adore him as a character. And I think that's part of the fun of it is um, you have, and that, and under the Hayes Code, how hard must it have been to get such a likable character as this, you know? And I love that they're able to get that through. And part of it is, you know, Thesiger's performance is just. I was going to say, so much of that is performance. Yeah. He's, he's just relishing every moment of this character. Yeah. And, so, yeah, I, I, I think Pretorius is probably it's he's up there. He's one of my favorite villains in a, in any movie ever. He's just so, yeah. so entertaining. So much fun. Yeah. Oh, and like you said, it does not take a lot for Pretorius to pull Henry away no. from his marital bed. He's like, you know, let's go to my secret lab and. He's very much coded, not as a scientist here, but as as an alchemist. Like he's wearing mm-hmm. an alchemist cap. The costuming he wears here, like he has that kind of black cloak with like the white undershirt underneath it, looks very much like a almost like a, a minister or a cleric of some sort. And that box he drags out with his creations that he grew from seed, and I think. Henry has one of the most remembered lines of the movies where like, this isn't science, it's black magic. And I'm curious because to me, there is more science in here. There's more to like what Pretorius has done actually seems like it's much further advanced than what Henry did, where Henry stitched a bunch of bodies together, like through like a hundred thousand jewels of lightning at it. And then he created this kind of like mindless, monstrous being. Whereas like Pretorius created like these kind of autonomous beings that are just super tiny. And he grew them all from scratch. Like he, you know how 
one day we're going to, I mean, I'm not sure here who's vegetarian, but one day we're going to have like really good lab grown meat, you know, that's not going to come from like be better than like beyond meat or impossible meat, like the real thing, not created from animals. Like that's going to be great stuff. Hopefully everybody's looking at me like, where the hell are you going with this? Um, but I'm thinking like that seems so much further along scientifically than what Henry has done. And yet he's looked at like a crazy person. I think it's interesting because we're going back to the alchemy uh, that is sort of excised from so many versions of the story with the first film. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating element because uh, like we discussed in the previous episode, um, uh, the early version, the Edison version, you know, he's made through a magic, you know, potion of some sort in a cauldron uh, and like baked in an oven. It's very weird. Um, and then uh, in Metropolis, you have that big, you know, I have the pentagram on the wall that sort of indicates that there's, you know, magic involved in the creation of Maria and then um, and, and various things like that. And so and then Frankenstein, the original, yeah, it's pseudoscience, but it is trying to show this in a scientific method. And here he's like, okay, so we've got that. And now we're going to bring this other element back in. And I just find that to be a fascinating move um, on, on Wales' part uh, to do that when he was sort of <laughs> went through so much to take it out of the uh, previous scripts of, of Frankenstein. You know, there's no elixir of life, for example, that was in the previous scripts of Frankenstein. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. I just think it's an interesting little, little factoid, I guess. I love how these little cre the little beings like the King, the queen, you have the Bishop and then you have the little devil. They all, represent like i mean you're looking at like basically Jungian concepts at mm. this point as well and different sides of our personality and very much pretorius is pure id like he is very much acting out in a way like if there's no ego or super ego that is like telling one like we have to keep ourselves in check because of moral and ethics he's like like you had said egrain like he's kind of acting like his most authentic self if his most authentic self is like completely unchecked and is allowed to do like whatever it wants all of the time and here you have like all these little aspects of his personality kind of interacting and intermingling with one another and i think like the devil and the king where they're the two that are most likely to want to indulge in their appetites, I think are the two that you see here. And the Bishop, I think is maybe whale kind of like turning a winking eye at like the censors mm -hmm. and the moral scolds at the time. Right. I mean, that's pr yeah, pretty much absolutely. what we see here. And the, the way also he disregards the, the, the poor ballerina as well. You know, again, it's, it, it almost mirrors his disregard mm -hmm. of uh, Elizabeth. You know, mm. she's so boring, <laughs> like, right. He has like absolutely no use for her whatsoever. She dances to one thing, but again, it's, it's this idea whale is trying to create this world with many possibilities for many kinds of lives. Like there's many kinds of 
metaphorical music that you can dance to that there doesn't have to be one way or only one outlook for you that you can there's many kinds of music or tunes that you can dance to so i do think there is something to be said for that as well and do we feel that henry is more repulsed or intrigued here like what do we feel henry's ultimate reaction is i'd say first one then the other like i think it starts as kind of a revulsion and gives way to i mean because again like we've said it doesn't take him much to eventually go along with all of this so i think what what starts out is like a nagging like i don't know about this very quickly turns into uh well there's definitely some possibilities here then we mm-hmm. could definitely try something like uh i uh, yeah it, it doesn't and it doesn't take much again for for him to for, for that reaction to swing the other way we return to the creature we yet to like the jesus portion of the movie i would say like this is where the monster as christ first comes into play where poor karloff's monster really can't catch a break um you get to show off some of whales like incredible sets here like this first forest that the creature encounters like i know that whale was really proud of this and you contrast that with what he sees later on beautiful lush setting set by this little kind of like kind of like wading pond and he comes by this young woman who has all her sheep again doesn't get much more religious and much more Christian than a young woman uh, guiding her little flock uh, by the water, leading them to drink. And she is immediately repulsed by him. And you see this, like, again, he's just trying to get her to stop screaming, but it looks much more violent, right? Mm -hmm. Like it does. I don't know if he's trying to hurt her, but it's not going well for either of them. Well, technically speaking, he even saves her life. And then, um, what does he get back is he gets Mm -hmm. shot in the arm, you know, and chased down by a, by an angry mob again, you know, when, when you say he saves her life, well, she falls in because she's afraid of him, but I'm reminded of the news story of this dog that would save children from drowning. And what you found out is he would get like treats every time he would like rescue a kid from drowning. And what you found out is like it would push kids in the lake and then pull them out because <laughs> it realized it was getting a tree. So did it really save the kids? Well, you know, it's it's technically speaking, I guess, his fault that she falls in. Right. But, you know, it's not. He's just he, doing he didn't thing. he didn't do it on purpose. No, no he did it's not, not a thing. Maria situation here. He learned mm-hmm. from that one. He jumps right. in after after her to get her out of the water. So, but I think the you get the villagers that attack the monster. What I find fascinating, like it, not so much that like the creature is is Christ itself, but it's a whale who's not a spiritual person, who's not a religious person, kind of like satirizing the story of the crucifixion a bit because the monster is created without the spark of life. Like the monster doesn't have. Pro- doesn't have a soul like he was created from all of, of these other inanimate dead parts he was taken from like another dead brain and then reanimated he doesn't have that what we would call like the spark of life so in some ways like you're and and then he's crucified where in jesus's story you know you have like the son of god who has come down 
born of like born of woman, not even of man, but just born of woman. He has a soul like the rest of us. And then he is like put to death by man. This is kind of like a, a gentle mocking of that, that you have like the reverse happening. This creature has been dead first and then he's getting crucified, not born first. He's already dead. Right. And now you're putting him to death once again. And I also think there's a shorthand uh, in the imagery of him being hoisted up on on the pole to being, oh, this is a suffering person. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's element of that involved in it as well, because the image is, you know, very well known by most people who would be seeing this movie. Um so I, I think there's a there's both and going on here. How does this stay in? That's what I'm curious about. Like how in a movie where you can't show the monster helping Christ down from the cross for fear that that would offend or corrupt persons. How is an image of the monster paralleling Jesus? Like showing him in a, a pose that we would most think of Christ the Redeemer. How is that left in? I mean, you're supposed to make that comparison. The senses are like, that stays, like that's good to go. That's was what I find fascinating. It's I think it part of it is the the belief in I mean the crucifix is the form of the the crucified savior and that is it is that sacrifice that is ultimately salvation. Um, and so that is particularly for, uh, Catholics, that is itself a a holy image, um, versus like, and, and again, the, the, the ideas of people assuming the Christ-like pose are as old as cinema, more or less, like the idea that we take on the suffering of Christ. I mean, that's also a very Catholic Lenten idea. So the idea of someone being suffering as Christ suffered is less egregious than someone uh, perhaps damning oneself by ending the suffering of Christ is, is, is my guess. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Um, I mean, it is a question I would love to have been answered, but yeah, I'm going to agree with that. You know, Catholics coming from a Catholic country, they're very precious about their iconography um so i can definitely see why depicting you know the crucifix with jesus on it would be kind of sacrilege and why perhaps they wouldn't have agreed to it as much as just someone taking up uh you know the position of the cross um again like maybe this is me just looking into it and this would never but you know the the cross you have to remember was a a depiction of torture you know before the whole christian thing it was used as a device of torture so maybe they were like probably not this is me just reading into it but maybe they were just like well it is a device for torture and it's i don't know i think i'm just going off the deep ends with it there <laughs> no i i I think there's. What do you think, Brett? I think there's also now. This is a little bit more practical, sort of separated from the religious iconography. There, I think it depends on how it was written in the script mm. as well, mm-hmm. because they say, "Oh, they hoist him up on a pole, and then they drop him in the uh, in the hay, you know, you know, the wagon." If it's just that, that's not the image. You don't. Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. see the 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 the. the 
way that whale stages that thing, you know? Right. And now, Igraine, please um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is during this period in the, uh, of its pre-rating system, they mostly just reviewed and approved or denied the scripts, Mm. not the final films, right? Yeah, and I mean, there was a few films where, you know, it definitely went back and they were like, no. But yeah, it was mainly it was mainly scripts. Um, they would have to pre-approve before a film could go into production. And if any right. anything was like starkly, you know, jumping out of them, they'd be like, absolutely not. So they're not getting like final cut of the picture. They're not going back saying remove these frames, remove this. They're just looking at the scripts and looking for what might be what they would deem immoral. There. Generally, and then I think it kind of, a lot of it depended on, say, I, well, I'm, I'm thinking about in Ireland, like our censorship, you know, it would have gone through the Hayes pre-production and then it goes through mm-hmm. perhaps, I, is it, does each state in America have their individual censorships? I don't know how it works in America now. No, the, no. The, like the general, the MPAA, okay, right. It's like a general governing right, so body. So then it just would have gone through that governing body afterwards rather than the Hayes, the, you know, the association of the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. they would have done all pre, and then the censorship board would have yeah. done post. Okay. Yeah. And there wasn't really a... This was... The Hayes Code was sort of set up as a self-censorship entity, so that... To keep the government out, out of Exactly, because yeah. the government... So there wasn't... Like in Britain, there. I mean, there was, you know, obviously a, a, a governmental censorship entity that really wasn't the case in the united states so um yeah. so the hayes code was sort of trusted with its own self the you know the or i should say hollywood was entrusted with its own form of uh, self-censorship um, mm-hmm. rather than, and but then you could have the catholic legion of decency come after you and say you know catholics hey don't go see this movie because it's offensive Right. So they were mostly private entities. When the monster is captured and escapes, number one, you get a Burgermeister, some great comedy again from him and Minnie. And they're not going to be in the film much longer. Like Minnie will have another scene or two, but this is really it. The Burgermeister kind of gets like clapped on the head and then is he's thrown aside by the monster and then is, is pretty much gone from the picture after that. But there's this side plot that involves Dwight Fry's Fritz yeah. here. Or it's Carl. And Brian, you one. wanted to speak on that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It's Carl in this one. Yeah. Um, because Now, this is as... Maybe this is the 21 deaths that were <laughs> excised, but there was originally a subplot where Carl, um, sent out, hired by Pretorius, was sent out to kill these people with... Um, and then it would be blamed on the monster, essentially. So I think it seems to me um, this is the one section of the movie after he escapes from uh, the the jail cell um, and heads towards the forest that it seems to have some plot holes. Like we just don't know. It's clunky. Yeah, we don't know what exactly. I mean, because like you have the the uh what are their names frida the little girl is found dead 
it seems out of character. Yeah, it doesn't that seem like the monster would. Yeah, I'm, kill a schoolgirl that we never see. Right, he's just sort of uh, he's, when he's he after he escapes from the jail, he he sort of runs through the streets and sort of chases people off, but the mm-hmm. it seems like he just heads straight back for the forest, you know, mm-hmm. in search of food and you know whatever encampments you know like the Roma encampment having some food and things like that, um, but there's. Um, but it seems like there are three murders here. You know, Frau, what is it, Niedermeyer, Niederman? I can't remember the name. I apologize. I wrote it down, but I've totally Frau Newman. Newman, thank you. So, Frau Newman and um, and then the little girl Frida are found murdered, and it just doesn't seem like he, the creature, had a chance to do that. Right. And so it also doesn't seem like he's just going to go in random houses no. and go up. But I guess with like Frau Newman and the boy in that house, like they actually added sighs or moans post production Mm -hmm. in order to bring the body count down. So like they're announced as dead, like Minnie announced like, oh, there's two more upstairs, like they're dead. But post production, they added Mm. like a woman moaning to suggest that she's lived in order to keep the actual body countdown again to appease morals and standards at the time. Yeah. So I think those are kind of open questions of the movie is like, is this like remnants of that excise subplot? Um, or is it actually the monster who did this? Um, mm-hmm. In which case it's just, it, it doesn't really jibe with what's sort of happening in this section of the movie where your empathies turn so far to the monster, mm-hmm. um, especially yeah. the sequence with the blind man. Um, and then it later, they sort of set up Carl and Ludwig as sort of this Burke and Hare kind of team that are going out and not just stealing bodies, but they're killing people to get the body parts. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I'm just find that to be an interesting curiosity about this movie. And maybe it's for me, one of its only imperfections that I'm just mm-hmm. like, what's going on here? Cause it's kind of uh, what's going on. Yeah. The sequence is a bit clunky. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I do. You mentioned the hermit and I think this is a good point to discuss like the evolution of Karloff's creature. Definitely. Here. And it was definitely a point of contention between whale and Karloff mm-hmm. where Karloff did not want the monster to speak he thought that that took away from a lot of the mystery and a lot of the power of the monster but i think it's a natural progression and i think you know it's not like he's out there you know doing hamlet in the park by the end of this movie which which he does in the novel practically i mean he i was gonna say that the, the novel he's very erudite by the end of the by the end of the story this is probably the one scene that adheres closely to Shelley's text. I mean, the rest of it borrows elements. How do we feel that this scene further humanizes Karloff's creature? What? Yes. It, well, it, like, it sh- he's a child. Basically, the creature is a mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first film, he's a child born from a parent who rejects him. And so he has to, you know, he goes out, he's been ostracized from society, and he finally fa- finds someone who for a very brief period takes on a father role for him 
And of course, the natural progression for a child is, you know, we've talked about him becoming more agile. So that's, you know, the toddler walking. And now this toddler is becoming a child who talks, who knows the names of things, who can enjoy, you know, stuff like music. And it's coming into that natural evolution where originally, you know, fire is bad, but it also has its uses. So it it is like, I know what Karloff is going on about. And I know he's looking at it from like a cinematic point of view. But at the same time, this whole book is about a parental child relationship gone toxic. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think this... It's a pretty early look at attachment styles before (laughs) uh, 200 years before that would even become something in the lexicon. Exactly. And so I think this scene in this film is so important to show that he is gone from newborn... And, you know, eventually becoming a teenager who is interested in, you know, a partner or a mate of some sort. Um, And so it it needs that little bit in between where we show him going from newborn to, you know, more of an adult kind of symbol. Um, And I think it's nice. I think it's a nice reprieve that he's found someone that doesn't look at him like a monster and that he's found a community almost, which again speaks a lot to, you know, the queer experience. Um, so yeah, I, I really have a big love for this scene. And I think it's so beautiful that the monster gets to really emote in this scene. He sheds tears, you know. Um, we see him in the first film frightened when he, after he kills Maria, uh, and you know, when he's screaming and things like that. But here, I mean, it's sort of a, it's a more complicated kinds of emotions he's experiencing because he's so happy to be in the presence of this person, but um, it, it brings him to tears. And it's just, uh, I don't know, that's a really, it's just a really beautiful sequence. Yeah, and there's that bit where he lays down to sleep. You know, the guy puts him yeah. in a bed mm-hmm. and it's just mm-hmm. that, you know, every, anyone who has experienced any sort of like anxiety or feeling like they are not, you know, part of something, just that feeling of I can sleep, I can rest now, I'm, I'm in a safe space. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's it's such a lovely like moment. Yeah. Well, you have the monster there also comforting, not only being comforted for the first time by the hermit, um, but also offering comfort. Like when the hermit is saying like, I've prayed so long for a friend i've been alone the creature is like patting the hermit on the back as well like kind of rubbing his back like it's a very it's a kind of gesture that like his you know his parents like brian egrain i'm sure like all of us at some point have like rubbed our child on the back Mm -hmm. when they've been upset or when they have been like overwhelmed with emotion like it's a really like soothing gesture like you know and it's not something that he's ever learned to do it's just like an innate gesture that all of a sudden he's able to do and to your point as well like speaking about like queer relationships like these are two men and they're not in any sort of like romantic relationship but they're like living together they're like off the grid they're just doing their own thing smoking cigars playing music drinking wine completely on their own and completely happy to do so like no one and not bothering anybody and then once again, the outside world is going to intrude on them in the form of like John Carradine and his buddy. Like John Carradine just can't leave well enough alone. 
I was reminded in this section of the the opening of uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, um, with the monster kind of taking on a, a Valjean type role, and that he's been mm-hmm. monstrized by society because of his criminal actions. Um, but he then meets and, and no one will accept him. No one will take him in because of this thing that he has for the monster. It's his look for Valjean. It's this, this prison pass that he's gotten as he's been, uh, paroled basically. And, uh, no one will, will give him any sort of kindness. And then this Bishop invites him in and shows him kind of now Valjean, of course, spits in the face of that, steals a bunch of silverware and takes off. But mm-hmm. like, even when he's returned to the Bishop and made to, you know, return the silverware. The bishop's like, no, no, no. You, I gave that to you. You, you also forgot these, and gives him more to take with him. Like it's, it's this idea of this someone who has just been so othered and monsterized, being shown the just the milk of of human kindness for the first time in a way that I think is really potent and very powerful. Um, and I think that you know, when you asked the question initially, how do we think this humanizes the monster? I said yes because. I feel like this, just like that moment for Valjean in Les Mis, this is the moment that for the monster solidifies his humanity and turns him into more than more than that other thing. Yeah. And I think it's part of what makes this character such a tragic figure. And I think Karloff captures that beautifully in his yeah. performance. Um, and it, it, it makes... I think it's what makes that character one of the most impactful and affecting, if not the best of the universal monsters as a whole is, is that element and, and the humanity with which Karloff infuses that character as a result of this interaction. Yeah. Well, I think what's great too, and what's really smart is the creature knows that it can't last. Like as soon as these two men come in, he's not the, the creature's reaction isn't pull up a chair grab a glass of wine like he knows the jig is up as soon as they walk in Mm -hmm. he immediately growls he immediately goes into defensive mode because this is what he has seen from everybody else and he's right like you see like this is the creature and they immediately like don't ask questions they they burn the hermit's house down i mean they basically cause this guy to become homeless in in an attempt to rescue him Mm -hmm. they cause this guy to lose everything his friend, all his worldly possessions, his home. So good intentions are, as we know, are, are the road paved to hell. We have the meeting of, of Frankenstein's creature in Pretorius. And I would say that the only thing worse than not having any friends and not having anybody care for and love you is having those things and then having them snatched away, right? Mm-hmm. So now this is what the monster wants to get again. And Pretorius sees this and Pretorius's wheels are spinning. He knows like I can use this. Like yep. the, the monster is going to become a blunt instrument for Pretorius. So you get this like really wonderful meeting once again between the uh, monster and its maker. Yeah, and this is sort of the beginning of a theme that you see carried through the rest of this series where the monster becomes a blunt instrument in the hands Mm -hmm. of someone else um, who shows some sort of care and attention to the monster. Um, He's kind of easily manipulated by these forces of kindness that are really using him for their own 
purposes. Um, and there are a couple of parts I love about um, the reversal of things between uh, Henry and the monster at this point. Uh, so now you have the monster saying to Henry, sit down. Um, and then earlier in the film, you have Henry lying, quote unquote, dead on the mm-hmm. on the table and his hand drops and Minnie screams, he's alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this indication that now who's the monster here? Right. And I, I find that to be um, just a, a wonderful touch to this movie. Yeah. Oh, I love the way a whale shoots this. I mentioned this briefly before, like a lot of great close-ups here, both uh, Thessinger and Colin Clive. And Clive is not doing well at this point. Like Clive had broken his leg prior to shooting in a horse riding accident, but he is dead within two years of shooting Bride of Frankenstein. Like he had a lot of health issues. He had struggled with alcoholism. He is not doing well during the shooting of this. And it really, it shows, um, you really see it in his performance. Like in, in Frankenstein, there's like a lot of passion. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like this manic energy that he brings. And a lot of that is, is robbed here. He feels like very withdrawn and, I think whale maybe leans into that as well. You see a lot of the push-ups right on Fessinger in this scene. They're shot from below. So you get these great Dutch angles and Pretorius just feels larger. Like he almost feels as big as the monster. And they're also these really like askance angles and he's just really pushed in on. So you can see who's dominating the scene where it's whenever he shows Clive up close, he's, is withdrawn back into his chair as he can. He's almost in a fetal position. He is very subservient. And he's not, like we had said, like, well, it doesn't take a lot for him to really get pulled back into this world, but he does not want to make another creature. He does not want to go back. And it's not really until Elizabeth is kidnapped that he agrees to do it. Um, But he's not able to be very forceful in his rejection either. It's almost like a child throwing a tantrum. No, I mean the, I, I think the, the filmmaking again is, is absolutely masterful. And again, it speaks to, I think Wales um, vision for the film and, and being able to put those points across and Pretorius gaining the, the upper hand within their dynamic um, just steadily over the course of the film and the way that he's able to, manipulate everyone that comes in his path from Henry to Carl to the creature itself. Like he is, he's the mastermind. He's the, the puppeteer. Um, he's the one that in the more immortal words of Bela Lugosi pulls the strings. Um, and it's, it's, it, it, it does make him such an effective villain. And the way that uh, Thessinger plays him is, is just, it makes it that much more incredible. He takes what, what, what good is already there on the page and just elevates it. Like it, all of those elements working together, just create a really compelling piece of cinema. Let's finally talk about the bride in the bride of Frankenstein. (laughs) Let's get to the end of this here. All of this is to, you know, I think at Steven, you had mentioned it in Egrain, you had mentioned it. Like, She's not even in for 15 minutes. Like she is in this movie for about maybe five minutes, but it's such a compelling performance and a compelling character. And so 
aesthetically so striking that we remember her as being in this so much more, but we get a recreation of the uh, laboratory scene from Frankenstein, but everything is much bigger. Mm -hmm. Everything is much more elaborate. Um, And I have no idea where I'm going with it outside of that. So somebody please (laughs) feel free to jump in and pick up the ball that I'm dropping. I love the uh, there's you know the scene where they've they've kind of unwrapped her where they started to unwrap her bandages and then it, it transforms and it's almost like these two proud dads presenting there. What's mm-hmm. what's the thing that like high society America they present a debutante they present coming up yeah kind of thing yeah yeah. Yeah, that's it. Just felt, you know, she's got this beautiful. Like, where did they get this dress from? Like, well, you have like two queer men. They know dresses. They know where they're going to (laughs) go. You know, they could shop. They could shop if if they didn't make it themselves. Right, I bet Pretorius was away Mm -hmm. at the. I mean, they probably went through like Elizabeth's like valet chase, right? They probably she had that packed away. I mean, Dessinger in real life did needlepoint. Like all through this film, whenever he wasn't filming, he was doing needle points. So That's he could he could have sewn that dress. Fantastic. But I'm sorry, Ikram. Continue. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, it does feel very much like a debutante mm-hmm. kind of, you know, these two proud parents presenting their beautiful feral daughter. Um and I just think it's such a wonderful it's just it's such a beautiful shot. I think it's it's almost for me it's almost as iconic as you know we see all the pictures of her like looking up and hissing whereas i feel like that shot is just it's just beautifully framed like it's and whale pulls out the tricks like he does the three quick shots in succession that he did in frankenstein Uh to introduce the monster and where those shots are like oh my god this is a horrible looking creature elsa winchester like her Bride can get it. I'm sorry. Like, aside from those scars <laughs> in the bottom of the neck, like she's quite lovely, and you could almost see like it's. It's. I wonder if part of that is the suggestion from Whale that having someone like Pretorius, who drinks from the cup of life, where Henry was so ensconced in his work, right. Mm-hmm who like all he he never really thought about what he was making it's just a mishmash of parts who cares what it looks like pretorius is about beautiful things i'm about fine gin uh cigars are my only weakness like pretorius is like he's a hedonist i mean that's really what he is right Mm -hmm. he's not going to create something ugly right it's yeah, I feel like if he had been in on the original creature, then yes, the creature would have been a bit of a, a looker. <laughs> he's, he's, the, he's the Steve Jobs. <laughs> like, your daughter might have been right about the He's one, the guy yeah. that's putting, you know, the, the nice coat on it. I just love I, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Lanchester's performance, though. I mean, just basing it on, you know, she was out feeding pigeons and said, oh, swans. and swans, you know, and just this bird-like behavior of this, you know, the way she mm-hmm. turns her head quickly and just sort of looks around um, with sort of this curious look. And then the the hiss of the swan at the end is, oh, it's just, 
it's so it, it's striking and even though there's so little screen time this is just making use there are no small parts only small actors you know mm-hmm. defined in this sequence you know because yeah. uh, it's so memorable um, I mean she she makes a meal out of very what what is in the script probably just a half a page but she fucking dines out on it in such an incredible way like and the i mean the look in her eyes i would absolutely believe that she was feral like there's something almost bestial in her in her in her mannerisms and in her gaze and that's that's pure performance like the costume and the makeup adds to that but it's all behind her eyes like it's such an incredible performance Mm -hmm. that i mean again less than like five minutes at max screen time total as this character. And yet we keep coming back to it. It's, it's the most striking image in the film by a mile. Like it's such an incredible performance and, and that's really all it is. It, it is her performance. A hundred percent. There is something almost balletic to her performance yes. though, like, as well. Like, whereas like Karloff's creature is like lumbering. Mm-hmm. He's backing into a room um, here's for something very like plotting about him, like right from the get go, like she is like swooning, like mm-hmm. she's able, there's almost like a gracefulness to her movements, even when she's making these kind of herky jerky movements, then she can like go into like a gliding movement. And there's something almost like dance, like with her movements. And it's very beautiful, very hard to capture. Even the hair mm-hmm. where you have that, uh, I think it was done with like a wire cage, and then you have like the painted streaks to suggest where the bolt of lightning uh, shooting up that would have like turned her hair white. Again, aesthetically, it just stands out. So the design you see, especially when she's on the table when she's wrapped up, it was based on sculptures of the Egyptian queen uh, Neferi- Nefertiti. Nefertiti, yeah. Nefertiti, yeah. yeah. Well, even the uh, hair is that. very much mm-hmm. that thing that kind mm-hmm. of thing too yeah the marge simpson before mm-hmm. there was marge simpson yeah and and marge in some of those halloween episodes she's got the streak mm-hmm. on her hair too yeah. you know yeah okay so we have this and we have our 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 creature who's waited all this time now he's wanted a mate he's wanted a partner he's wanted a friend and they lay eyes on one another and we get, uh, if this was that Simpsons episode where, you know, like where uh, Lisa gives Ralph the I choo choo choose you. <laughs> this is the moment where his Valentine's heart rips in half. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is her right to do. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What do we make of this? This this is one of the most heartbreaking moments, I think, in horror history, right? And, Egrant, I think you started the episode by saying, like, part of the reason this movie called to you is because she shows such agents that she was created with an explicit purpose, but she ultimately says, nope, that's not for me. Yeah, I mean, it's more, again, that rejection of, uh, you know, what people think you should you know, what part you should play in society, whether that is being like part of, you know, a heteronormative relationship. It's just another example of, of that rejection. But at the same time, it is, it is so heartbreaking. And especially because like, 
you know, I relate a lot to the creature, you know, as a child who has a bad relationship with their parents and, you know, has, has been rejected herself. And I feel really bad because that is all he wants is companionship, you know, not so much like a romantic relationship. All he wants mm -hmm. is companionship. And he's like, surely someone who was born in the same way as me, surely we should have mm -hmm. a connection. Surely we should, you know, and it's just that realization where he's like, no, this yeah. is it. Like, I'm, I'm not meant mm -hmm. for this world. And it's just, it's just so sad because it is, again, I know I keep relating it back, but it is such um, a lived experience mm -hmm. for a lot of people just feeling like they do not yeah. belong to this world. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. And I it really think is. it also goes back to a scene earlier in the film we didn't talk about when he sees his own reflection in the water mm. and he even rejects mm. himself. I mean, that's how, right. I mean, that's how heartbreaking this character is. Yeah. Um, yeah. When he, when he meets Pretorius and he says like, you know, like hate living, like dead, good, hate living. Like he hates himself and mm. he does not want to be in this world anymore because everyone has rejected him. The one person who hasn't rejected him has been taken from him. He would rather be dead at that point. And I think to your point of grain, like mm -hmm. that is in, unfortunately that's an experience that some persons do unfortunately go through. Um, so here we see that rejection. He doesn't to the credit of the film and to the credit of like Karloff's performance. Like he doesn't force himself on her. I think he makes like really like two attempts. Like he sits with her. He tries to like, gently hold her hand and just say friend and she recoils in horror and we get that you said like the hiss uh which i think elsa lanchester said she got like when swans would come when she would come too close to the swans she was feeding like when she would get too close to their children mm -hmm. the swans would like hiss at her yeah that's where she got that sound from which is amazing like that is fantastic and that angle like the way she would draw her head back at it and Karloff's creature is like okay like this is not meant to be um so he very quickly says well shot my shot and I'm gonna take my L and that's it do you I read an article from someone who I respect a lot and normally like they're writing a lot where they like really take this movie in this scene to task and they say like well this the bride never asked to be born anyway and i'm like well nobody does like nobody who comes like i don't know of anybody that to the to who is asked to be born and i feel like this scene is handled as like gently as it possibly could like i can't think of a gentler rejection in a scene the only question i have is no one asked the bride, well, what do you want to do next? Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's immediately assumed like, well, if you don't want me, then you must not want anything. Let's blow each other to smithereens. Correct. I, I almost put in the notes, like is, is the creature, does, does the creature behave almost like an incel here? Like I'm rejected by a woman and therefore I burn it all down. And I ultimately didn't because I think there's so much more going on there, mm -hmm. but it, my knee-jerk reaction to the end of this movie on this watch was just like, that is some really like short-sighted behavior. 
Um, just, just a very knee jerk reaction. Like I, like I've been rejected by everyone. I've rejected myself. I, I hate everything. Fuck it. Every, everything dies. Mm -hmm. Like just seems very short sighted to me. Um, and again, it, it's part of the tragic, the, the tragedy of this character. It's part of the tragedy of this film that that's how it ends. Like he's this, there's this, this thing that he wants that he knows within himself that he needs and literally no one will give it. And the one time he does get it, it's ripped away from him. Mm-hmm. And then he's given it the option again and it, it is rejected out of hand. Um, and so, yeah, I, that, that therein lies the tragedy, but, and and I know part of that is probably like the Hayes code, like uh, monsters have to pay, for their sins at the end. And I think that's why I, I think everybody dies. But I mean, for me, that was the big, like the big question at the end is why does Henry get to live? Is it because he gets paired off with a woman we'll is it because Elizabeth is there? Right. But like that, that for me was, was, was the big question here. Why, why do these three in particular Pretorius? I know why, but the bride does nothing wrong. Why does she have to pay for what, for the sin of rejecting a man? Like, come on, that's, that's absurd. <laughs> I think it's because related to the, she's a monster. She's not na- natural, I guess. Um, so I think that's part of what that requirement was. It's, I mean, I don't know for sure. I haven't read the Hayes notes on this movie. I don't know if they're still available or not. Um, but it is a, it's a strange ending and it's one that really is hard to, for me now, uh, as I get older to sort of wrap my arms around, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. I, I really struggle with this ending. Whale would sure. agree with you. Yeah. Hey, great. I'm interested in your take. Um, cause you're the only like woman here on this panel, you know, where this, like the month, the bride has given her rejection of the creature and, and he, takes his no but then she's immediately killed along with everybody else for it like your take on the creature's decision to kind of blow it all up i think looking at it from a 2024 perspective yes i would absolutely take it but i think there's a certain degree of um the creature almost taking pity on this other creature you know she like i said wasn't asked to be born and he knows exactly what's going to happen you know she's not going to be placed in society and people are going to be like oh my god look at this you know creature born from cadavers let's you know treat her nicely he knows that's not going to happen he knows that she's more than likely going to be cast aside when you know frankenstein's guilt gets the better of him and pretorius decides he wants to move Mm -hmm. on to a bigger and better project and that she's going to suffer just as much as he did. And people are going to chase her with pitchforks and they're going to want her dead and she's going to live a miserable life. So I can kind of see it from that point where he's like, you know what, I'll do us a favor yeah, mm-hmm. and let's not put her through this suffering so like I have. But yeah, but I can see it from, well, she has enough autonomy to reject him so she should have enough autonomy to get mm-hmm. the chance to live a life um so yeah i can definitely see it from from yeah. both perspectives so 
the one thing that does throw me off is the fact that he like tells Henry like go you live like all of a sudden he has this idea like oh Henry's an okay guy because Henry is the person who has done nothing but abandon his creation from the get go right like if anything and in the original script I think Henry does die definitively die or it's it's left pretty clear if it's not shown him under the rubble that Henry and Elizabeth don't make it out that all of them die in this rubble. And I think Universal makes him change that. Like, no, we don't want Henry and Elizabeth to die here. So Whale is like, fine. And he's not too thrilled about it, but he's like, that's the one one artistic change that he agrees to really make from the studio. Because it doesn't really make sense that all of a sudden the creature would say, hey, you've rejected me all of this time. And I'm going to let you go. I also don't think it makes a lot of sense to build a castle with a kill switch in it. (laughs) (laughs) But you get a cool explosion at the end. That's, I think. Hell yeah. I think that's the artistic decision there. (laughs) If I'm touring, if I'm buying a home and I'm like, what does this button do? They're like, please don't press that. The house will explode. That's a load bearing button. Yeah. I'm looking at a new home. Um, there was also another ending to this movie to kind of hammer the religious angle even more where a priest convinces the creature to let Henry live and then to give himself over to God. And the creature basically converts to Christianity before being struck dead by a bolt of lightning. So that would have been a possible ending. Thus being rejected not only by his creator, but the but almighty the creator God, as well. So, which would be the... I, I can only picture a Terry, Terry Gilliam cartoon, like animation, <laughs> coming down, like just the voice of God going no, and then striking Well, that is interesting. The creature you know, because in Peggy Webling's original play, that's how the monster dies. It is struck by lightning. Hmm. Um, so. It's fascinating, but that so we Henry and Elizabeth live to give us the son of Frankenstein in a few short years. And I think we touched on that question earlier. This is the peak, so we don't need to. So any final thoughts on Bride of Frankenstein? Let Bill Condon make a remake, you cowards. <laughs> Yeah. That's all that that is the reason that man became a director. He wants to direct a Bride of Frankenstein movie. He got about that close before Universal backed out of the dark universe. Damn it, just let him do it. There have been a lot of attempts to remake this over the years. Uh, for a while, um Maggie Gyllenhaal was uh attached to direct a remake of it. Um so hmm. we'll I don't know. Who knows? Uh, Universal keeps on announcing these things and changing their mind. You know, Karen Kusama was going to do Dracula. And then, you know, just before they started shooting, they pulled the plug. Um, So there's, who knows? Who knows what this, I I mean, you would have a think, if you 
did uh, Bride of Frankenstein now, you'd have a very, very different movie. So for sure, um, I I don't I mean, there know is what the, the angle. Bride. There are several remakes to be on. Let's be honest. Sting. Yeah, there's the Bride starring Sting. There's Frankenstein created woman in the Hammer Cycle, which is a which is actually a pretty damn good movie. Um, there's uh, I, I read your Letterbox review on that one the other day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there there's lots of uh, sort of unofficial. Brides of Frankenstein. Yeah. I actually wrote a bloody disgusting article on that uh, a couple of years ago. But there's even that yeah. Buffy episode, isn't there? there is. um, yeah, that, that's based on the one of the, the weaker episodes of Buffy. <laughs> <It's> not... <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> I don't even. Re- there are I no weak episodes of Buffy. Let me introduce. You I don't to either. Beer bad. Beer bad. And... It's um. I think it's in the first season where this uh, these two science geeks, one of their brothers died. And so they've brought him back, but now he wants to get Cordelia's head to put on a reanimated corpse so he can live with his bride. Season two. Now that you say that, I do remember it and I hate it. It's, yeah. You could <laughs> say you that know. you could right, say bye. that Weird Science is a is a sort of unofficial remake of of Bride mm. of Frankenstein. You know, mm. there are lots of uh, things like that out there. I really want to do a Buffy podcast. Just throwing that out there into the world. One day. <laughs> um, one day. All right. I promise these won't all be three hours, Brian. <laughs> I promise. It's all right. All right. Listeners, I think we've covered it. I think we've hit Bride of Frankenstein. I'll throw it out there to our listeners. I promise you that all of our Frankenstein episodes (laughs) will not be three hours. I'm putting that gauntlet down there right now. Challenge Um, accepted. No, challenge not accepted. I don't think I could talk for three hours about Ghost of Frankenstein. I'm sorry. I don't. Challenge accepted. We will not be doing that. I will, and I will, I will pull the kill switch (laughs) on the podcast. At that point, like, you'll just, the whole show will blow up. <laughs> Before we go, let's plug a few things. E-Grain, what do you have coming up with the What a Scream podcast? Um, so I am currently uh, recording for season three of What a Scream, which will come out in February. Um, so I've got some really good episodes, you know, one that concentrates on wrestlers in horror. Um, <laughs> uh, as well as I am introducing my husband, bless his golden retriever heart i'm introducing him to a few extreme horrors um yeah he once said that he like i don't mean to gatekeep horror at all but he once said that uh he thought it he was saying it in quite a big-headed way so he was like oh you know i like extreme horror like saw and i was like that's a challenge (laughs) because i don't let you watch what i watch don't let (laughs) him what do you mean don't let him because he's such a like okay so a little, a little sorry for elongating this. That's okay. Uh, I was We're two I was hours watching... and 45 minutes in. You can <laughs> we haven't hit three hours yet, okay? We've got some time. Fine. <laughs> um, I was watching uh, August Underground and he came down and he was like, what are you watching? I was like, slammed the laptop closed. I was like, nothing, absolutely porn. nothing. I'm I... watching porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really bad porn. And then I was like, you know what? I have, um, I have a screener for a new film that's come out. Let's watch it. And I, I made him watch uh, when evil lurks okay. mm. and he was he, he didn't talk to me for about an hour afterwards really um <laughs> yeah. what did him in in that so, one uh it is the dog scene okay 
Yeah, that that's scarred. And him. when you um, see them setting up, because we all see that scene and we know what's coming, and we're like, "Yes!" <laughs> Is he just like, "Oh, yeah. there's a dog. I yeah. bet the girl's going to pet <laughs> She's him." She's going to. Everything's going to be lassie. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I bet that dog saves her. <laughs> so your husband like, enjoys oh. horror, but like on a different level. Yes, so I one of the episodes is I am introducing him to two extreme horrors and trying to garner, <laughs> trying to see what reaction. What he comes are the out two? Um, so I've decided on a Serbian film. I still can't them. bring myself to watch that one. I will never. <laughs> um, and I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to be horrible and actually make him watch August Underground. Or whether I might go along the lines of something like Sallow, <laughs> just to see. I'd mm-hmm. love to see his reaction to Sallow. Um, so, yeah, I haven't just dis- any suggestions. I will take them. So <laughs> but I haven't decided on the second one interested yet. Interested to hear how your journey into singledom goes after right. <laughs> this time next year I'm divorced. Yeah. <laughs> I showed my wife. My wife's not a horror fan. I showed her um, Midsummer. And uh, yeah, she didn't speak okay. to me for, yeah, it, it was, it, so I found her uh, afterwards in the shower. She was crying. It was, a, it oh, was, no. yeah, it was, she was very, very disturbed by that movie. So, and Igrin, you've also have like a video series uh, from Moving Pictures Film Club, right? Like a horrors around the world. Yeah. Uh, what's coming up yeah. for that? Um, hopefully that will continue this year. I know Tim is concentrating. He's doing great things with the podcast. Um, I'm doing a lot of things with that. I'm, I'm doing a Dario Argento with Tim on that podcast, looking at um, Profondo Rosso, which is my favorite Argento film. Um, and yes, we should be continuing on with uh, Around the World in 80 Horrors, Excellent. which is fascinating because it's really weird finding random horrors mm-hmm. from random countries. And you're like, what the hell? Excellent. <laughs> So where can our listeners find and support you? Um, so you can listen to the podcast, the usual places. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, because uh, I would never call it X, um, at what underscore scream, as well as Instagram, what a scream. And I'm also on TikTok where I do like little mini uh, video tidbits as well um, about horror films. So it's what a scream podcast on TikTok. Excellent. Well, we'd nice. love to have you back on we've enjoyed having you here i always enjoy speaking with you in the limited time we have and like i said our mutual friend rebecca from ghouls and talking hitchcock when she suggests somebody i'm like yep absolutely like we will <laughs> do that steven thank you so much for having me oh thank you for putting up with me i appreciate that <laughs> with all of us really <laughs> so, but, Steven, what's going on with Disenfranchised? Uh, we we just finished our bye week. Um, and a couple days from the recording of this episode, um, an episode that will have dropped a couple days ago as of the release of this episode, uh, we'll kick off our Kinganing, the drawing of three, our January miniseries where we talk about uh, three Stephen King failed franchises. The first episode will be on uh, Christine, John Carpenter's Christine, and we'll have uh, our very own Rachel Reeves on that episode. Uh, talking about that one. Uh, so we're very excited. Um, and then as we move into February, of course, we've got our annual Valentine's episode featuring our eternal Valentine, Mike Snoonian, um, who will come on to talk about the um, the, the Turkish superhero movie uh, Valentine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's going to be a Yay. good time. That'll be a good time. 
looking forward to that. Enjoyed your episode on The Flash. Oh, thank you um, so much. I disagree with your co-host, Brett, on a lot of things on that episode. I feel my, hear myself like talking to the show as I'm like doing yeah. things, you know. Like, I I mean like, that's I fine. Know. I find myself disagreeing with Brett a lot yeah. just in conversation. He's one of my like, best friends, but sometimes yeah. I'm just like, dude, I don't dis I don't agree. Good thing about best friends is you can disagree with them and still love them. Absolutely. He's like, yeah, I don't think DC has any like icons. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Exactly. Like, right. And I and there are so many times during that episode where I'm just like, I I I can't make this point any clearer than I'm making it. I'm just gonna have to move on. It's a really fun episode. I would Thank definitely you. point listeners in that direction. Brian. Okay. Between your Frankenstein articles, Movie for Life, you have a ton of stuff coming up. What is coming going on with you right now? Well, um, Movies for Life, we're going to have our Discoveries episode uh, of 2023 uh, coming out pretty soon. I, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to say when because I'm the one who's editing it and I'm busy. Um, let's see here. <laughs> um, <laughs> after that, we're not really sure. We're going to come up with we're going to be kind of back to our regular format of each picking a movie and discussing um a movie on a subject uh so those we haven't really figured out exactly which one we're going to do yet though so yay that's that's fun um as far as my writing goes uh, i'm just gonna draw attention to the faces of frankenstein series again at mannervellum.medium.com uh if you want to Take a look at The Bride. Uh, I have actually a couple articles. I have one from a couple years ago on The Bride of Frankenstein specifically. And then I have an article that is dedicated to the Universal uh, Frankenstein series uh, after the first film. So from Bride through... At this point, it's through House of Dracula. I am going to be hitting Abaddon and Costello meet Frankenstein in another uh, installment somewhere down the line. Um, and I also wrote a couple years ago, a piece for bloody disgusting called the many brides of Frankenstein. Uh, I haven't reread it, so I don't know how it holds up, but Hey, uh, it's there for you. Um, I'm always a little reluctant to, uh, guide people towards articles. I wrote yeah. a long time ago. Go but. back and read the comments and see No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I am not going to I I I learned long ago not to read the comments uh on good man <laughs> on anything I write. So good man. And we will post a link to those manner uh Valum articles here in our show notes. And listeners, if you've made it this long, indulge me for one moment. Uh please if you've made it 3 hours in, you like the show. I mean, you can't, even if you're like hate listening at this point, if you're like, <laughs> I just want to punch Mike in his stupid face. Like, look, it is a face made for punching. Uh, and that's okay. Please go ahead. I, I would love for you to, because we've been stuck on like 120 reviews for a little while right now. And I feel like I ask this every episode. If you can take a moment and go to like Apple in particular, rate us five stars write a few sentences about why you are enjoying the show and then subscribe to us goes a long way to like new listeners discovering us and listenership doubled from 2022 to 2023. So I know there's a lot of new folks out there. If some of those new folks could take a minute and write that review, it's a free, easy way 
to go and support us. Even if you write five stars and go, I want to punch Mike in his stupid face. That's totally cool. I will accept that as a review. I need to go back uh, and edit my review. Go ahead. You know, I just want to <laughs> do that. That's fine. Another way you can support the show. And maybe we add a tier for like a thousand bucks. You can punch me in the face. I will fly out <laughs> and you can punch me in the face. But Patreon, or you can pick a co host. <laughs> Any oh, co host. You're volunteering us now. For a thousand, I would, this let, idea. I would let the co host keep the whole thousand bucks. Okay. Now a little more into it. A little more into it. A little more into it. <laughs> Some people pay a thousand bucks to get punched in the face. All right, is all I'm saying. That's not me. Um, not you. Yeah, me neither. Like not my. Anyway, we've hit the three-hour mark. It's getting weird. Should we keep this in? Why not? Um, go to Patreon.com/slash Pod on the Pendulum. Support the show by becoming a patron today. It's where all our bonus stuff goes. A lot of times we don't do horror because you know we have a variety of interests. Like I'm pushing for doing the iron claw in january but we've done like thanksgiving in november we've done godzilla minus one um i'm pushing to do the iron claw this month but we'll talk a lot of horror things as well over there it's where our bonus content goes it's also where you know when we buy materials like we buy blu-ray box sets and books and other uh, source material so we can do a lot of the research and get alternating points of view so we can bring you what i hope are well researched and articulate articulate uh, episodes uh, when we do these things. So that's, I'll just say one more time patreon.com slash pod of the pendulum. Please consider becoming a patron today. Visit our site pod on the pendulum.com for all of our back episodes. We have an Instagram pod on the pendulum, which I've been trying to post on every day to do some factoids and fun stuff and little bonus stuff there. Pod and pendulum over on Twitter, pod of the pendulum over on Blueski. But, you know, social media is kind of a cesspool. So, you know, I'd probably say go to Instagram and there'll be more fun stuff, you know, there too. And you follow my personal account, you can see pictures of my dog who steals pizza from my my wife's lunchbox. She's a good girl, but she steals pizza. Become a patron so I can buy my dog proper pizza. Okay, you monsters. We'll be back next week with Son of Frankenstein. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a